Good morning. That song begs the question, and the question is, is it well with your soul? There's going to come a day, and that song preaches about that, when the trumpet will sound, and the only question that will matter is whether, whether it is well with your soul. We're going to talk about that today. We're actually going to talk about heaven today. We're going to talk about eternity. And it's kind of ironic, in the back of the room there's a clock with a 30-minute timer, and it's like, talk about eternity for 30 minutes, go. So I don't think we're going to make it, but we're going to cover some ground, and we're going to talk about some very interesting things that I think will be an encouragement to you. Last Sunday, I turned 60 years old. And I've thought a lot more about heaven in the last week or so than I ever have in my whole life. And heaven is a source of great encouragement. It is our eternal destination. And destinations are a powerful force. They have the ability to transform our present reality. When I was a kid, we used to travel by car from Springfield, Missouri to Estes Park, Colorado, almost every year for vacation. And <clears throat> the kids may not understand this, but there was a day when we had to travel without smartphones. And it was brutal. And you drive across Kansas, and when you're 12, 13 years old, it seems like Kansas goes on forever. And then finally you hit the Colorado state line, and you're like, all right, we're there. And it ends up that eastern Colorado looks a whole lot like Kansas. But we live for the moment as kids. We live for the moment to look to the western horizon and see the head and top of the Rocky Mountains standing above the horizon because that was our destination. That's where we were going. And that moment was always a special moment in the trip because we knew that that was where we were going and it was going to be beautiful and fun. Well, heaven is the eternal destination that guides us. But really, how often do we look at and study God's illumination about the realities of heaven? And how can a clearer understanding of the realities of heaven change our earthly life? Well, let me answer it this way. We are to live this life with heaven in our heart, period. And that does two things for us. When we live with heaven in our hearts, we have a tremendous sense of hope and encouragement. This is not our home. But secondly, when we live with heaven in our hearts, we have a tremendous sense of urgency. Because when we read about heaven in a few moments, you may be very surprised, as I was, to see even in the description of heaven, the gospel, the urgency of the gospel rings out. And when we live as believers with heaven in our heart, and we see the lost around us, we know that there is a sense of urgency that they hear and be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk this morning, actually we're going to sprint through Revelation 21 and 22. Now many people avoid the book of Revelation because they believe it's too scary, too complex, too mysterious. But I have some really good news. The meaning of the Revelation of John is simple and clear. So this morning I'm going to give you the David Mercer commentary on the entire book of Revelation. Here it is. Jesus wins the final victory, and he brings us, his church, into eternity with him. That's it. 
The rest are details. Are there some interesting, mysterious details? You bet. Could you study them for the rest of your life? Absolutely. But the one message that rings out of Revelation is that Jesus is forever victorious over every ounce of sin and every rebellion, and that his desire is to bring us into heaven to share eternity with him. I have a commentator that I like to follow, David Guzik, and here's his breakdown of the book of Revelation. I find this really helpful. He said there are three things happening in the book of Revelation. In chapters 1 through 3, we see Jesus, the Lord of the church. And then in chapters 4 through 20, we see Jesus, the lion over the nation. And then finally, in chapters 21 and 22, we see Jesus, the lamb among the leaders. That's what we're going to focus on. So in Revelation 21 and 22, we see all of the mega themes of Scripture coming to their final and complete resolution. We see the end of sin's death grip and destruction. We see believers restored to a sinless and eternal relationship with God, kind of like Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before the fall. We see God living among people from all nations. And we see the real reason that we were created, to worship, serve, and dwell with God for all of them. Now I'm going to give you one disclaimer before we get into the, the meat of the sermon. What I want to do is I want to go through 21 and 22 of Revelation for more of a sense of wonder rather than theological depth. Now trust me, if you have the time and the inclination to study Revelation in 21 and 22 with depth, there will be more than enough to satisfy. It is some of the most profound writing in all of Scripture because it's talking about eternity and the presence of God in heaven. But I want us to do kind of like what I've done when I've gone to the Grand Canyon. You stand at the South Rim and you look out over this amazing creation of God. And you just soak it in. You just experience it. Sometimes you don't have to understand everything to appreciate it and see the beauty. And so that's the approach that we're going to take this morning. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 21. And in short, I want us to take some time to glimpse the mountaintops of heaven from the dull plains of our earthly experience. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that you are the God of this earth, and you are the God of heaven. We pray as we open up your word that you will show us yourself and your truth and your beauty and your wonder and your life and your plan and the eternity that we have with you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in Revelation 21, verse 1, we see John writing down these words as they're revealed to us. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now the word heaven in verse 1 means the atmosphere, the sky, outer space, but it doesn't mean where God lives. It means the earth and the heaven. God is going to make them new, and the word new here means of a new kind and a new order. When God makes all things new, he's not going to do a reboot or a retread of what we currently experience. 
It is going to be new and wonderful of a kind that we have never experienced. The promise of this old heaven and old earth being replaced by a new heaven and earth is really a very old prophecy. We see it throughout the Old Testament. A good example <clears throat> is in Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19, where Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. You see that? This new heaven and earth is going to be so profound, we won't even remember this. It's going to be so overwhelmingly beautiful and powerful that Isaiah tells us that the old will not be remembered or come to mind. And then Isaiah goes on and says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create a Jerusalem, which is the new Jerusalem we'll talk about in a moment. I create a new Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. The new heaven and the new earth will be a whole new act of creation by the infinite creative God. And it's going to be wonderful in ways that we cannot imagine. Think of the most glorious thing you can think of in all this creation. For me, it's the, the deep space shots from the Hubble Space Telescope where you see these incredible galaxies that are just in the dark parts of space that we see as darkness from the planet Earth. They're out there. They're wonderful. They're magnificent. But in this new heaven and Earth, God's going to make things of a new order, and they're going to be of a new kind and spectacular and beautiful. Now, in verse 1, did you see what was not created new? The sea. Why? Well, to the Jewish mind, the sea was a symbol of separation and evil. And God wants to make absolutely crystal clear that in heaven there is no evil, and there will never be any separation from God. And so he says, there's no sea. Now look at verse 2. <clears throat> In verse 2, John says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in the short time that my family and I have been part of one community, we have learned one thing. This is a church of weddings. Okay? Um, people get married here a lot, so if you're single, watch yourself. But this, there's a profoundly beautiful moment in earthly weddings where the bride appears and comes down the aisle to the groom. I remember very distinctly my own wedding, and that was a profound and beautiful moment. But this moment in verse 2, where the bride of Christ comes out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, adorned for her husband Jesus, that is a moment of beauty on an eternal scale. Now think about all the weddings that you've been a part of. They require immense planning and preparation. God has been preparing for this moment and planning for this moment for all of eternity. Do you think about that? That God has called us as believers to be the bride of Christ, and he has a wedding plan, and he's been planning it for eternity. And it will be something that is really indescribable in its, its beauty and its splendor. So also, this description of the New Jerusalem is talking about the capital city of eternity. This capital city is going to be filled with the people who are redeemed, the saints from all time. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus talks about this New Jerusalem. 
And I want you to listen for something here, because the title of my message is Heaven Help Us. The reality of heaven today helps us have hope and encouragement. Okay? And listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. I don't know about you, that's phenomenally encouraging. This world of strife and sin and struggle is not it. We have a greater hope. Jesus himself is preparing eternity for us. He's preparing us for the wedding where he's the groom and we're the bride. And this new Jerusalem comes from heaven, and it's exciting. I mean, if that, if that doesn't get you excited, I can't help it. Okay? This is a glimpse into the eternal realm where God brings about a wedding that has been planned for all time. This idea of this wedding goes back all the way to Abraham. In Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, here's what we see. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, note that, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to this in verse 10. For he, Abraham, waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham lived in tents, but he saw through faith that this earth was temporary, and it was a shadow of eternity with God. This world is not our home. We are, as believers, we are aliens in this sinful, broken world. And we are meant to live with heaven in our hearts every day, just like Abraham did in faith when he said, I'm living in a tent now, and I'm waiting for the place that has foundations that's made by God. That's eternity. Abraham lived with heaven in his heart. Now look at verse 3. <clears throat> Get a little bit of water here. In verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, this loud voice announces the eternal desire and purpose of God. God wants his own people. He wants to personally dwell with them. Now, this is a gospel call. It's a gospel call to those people who are in rebellion to God and are who are running from his presence. God, in this vision of heaven, says, here's what my plan is for you, that you would yield to my desire to save you, and that I could call you my own. That's the God. God sent his son to die on a cross, to shed blood, to pay for your sin, so that you could be his, part of his people, and you could be with him forever. And God announces that in a loud voice. For believers, 
this loud voice with a shout of victory. We are forever going to be with God without sin. Can you imagine that? Now think about your life. I mean, I struggle with sin. I'm going to guess you do too. Can you imagine what it would be like to be with God and not have that struggle and not have that barrier? That's exactly what heaven is going to be like. We're going to be with God in a social setting. Okay? We're going to be together as believers, and we're going to be together with God for all eternity without the hindrance and barrier of sin. I am so excited for that. When I was a little kid, I used to think about heaven, and I would get scared. Because I would think, what if I get bored? I mean, forever is a really long time. What if I've done everything, and I, I, I just get bored? Well, here's the answer to that. We're going to live together as the body of Christ with an eternally creating, infinite God. There is no boredom. Every day is going to be like the first brand new, most exciting day of all reality because we get to be with God and we get to do it together. I don't know that there's a more beautiful picture of it. Look at verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> In verses 4 and 5, God does some amazing things. It says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, <clears throat> nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And so here, what are we seeing here? We are seeing the death of sin and all of its collateral damage, all of its pollution, and all the pain will be put to death forever in heaven. I want you to notice a detail that I didn't think about until I was preparing for this sermon. It says that God will wipe away every tear. Notice that God personally, with his touch, ends death and sorrow and crime. This is a personal and intimate moment where God ends your pain. Now, I don't know what you struggle with. I don't know what scars the battle with sin has left on your life. But what I do know is that when we get to heaven as believers, God will personally and intimately end all of our pain and all of our tears forever. It is a beautiful moment. It reminds me of when Jesus would reach out and heal a leper by that touch. Here God is wiping away our tears personally and intimately. And then, in verse 5, God sits down. Why does he sit down? To demonstrate that eternity is complete and finished and final. John is instructed to write all this down because it's important. It's a testimony about the future that will transform our present. <clears throat> Look at verses 6 through 8. Here, John writes the following. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderer, sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, you probably know this, but I'm going to remind you. The alpha and the omega is the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. Okay? You know, alphabets are amazing things. We have 26 in the English letters in the English language. And you can write poetry and music and history and fiction, and you can express reality in powerful ways. Infinite ways, really. And what Jesus here is saying is, I am the first and the last letter. Everything, everything that can be described, I am the master of. He is complete master over all creation, all outcomes, all eternity. He is literally the first and the last word. And this master, Jesus says, it is done. It is finished. The plan of salvation and the object of salvation are forever completed because Jesus began it and he finished it. In verse 6, we notice that there's another gospel call. Jesus says in verse 6 that if you're thirsty, come to the well of life and he will quench your thirst forever. Now there is also a warning in that passage. Those who reject salvation will embrace the second death. They will embrace eternal separation from God. <clears throat> Look at verses 9 through 14. In 9 through 14, John says, Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls filled with the last, uh, seven last plagues came to me and talked to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone. By the way, when the Bible uses the word jasper, it means diamond. It's, it's crystal clear, as we see. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gate, and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, three gates to the east, north, south, and west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Wow, there is a lot going on here, okay? So this is one of those passages you could spend a lot of time looking at and pulling out meaning. <clears throat> but here's what I want to focus on. Look at the structural components of this city. There is a wall, there are gates in the wall, and there are 12 foundations to the wall with the gate. So, why a wall? Doesn't it seem kind of odd to you that there's a wall in heaven? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. This wall gives the city definition, and it marks a boundary between those who are within the city and those who are outside of the city. Heaven has a wall that forever separates the children of God from those who have rejected God. Again, we see the gospel. This wall shows that heaven is both inclusive and exclusive. There's a wall between the saved and the unsaved. So we see descriptions of this wall. So you could ask the question, what is this wall? Let me rephrase the question. A better question is, who is this wall? This wall is Jesus. Jesus has made an open invitation to all of humanity to accept salvation. 
But as C.S. Lewis says, God is a perfect gentleman. He will not force himself upon anybody. We choose. We choose whether this wall will be a place of security with God forever and ever or a wall of exclusion. We have to make that choice. Now, this wall has gates. It's interesting. These gates are named after the tribes of Israel, and they point all four directions. And in Isaiah 49, we see God's description of why he called Israel. He says in 49.6, I will also give you, he's talking about the Israelites, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God chose Israel to be a light unto the nations by living out a relationship with God. They failed. But in heaven, God forever records and honors their unique calling as the nation of Israel. These 12 gates, which seem to invite the nation, are a testimony that God is offering and has offered salvation to the nation. All nations have the, op the opportunity to accept God's salvation. We have to make the decision whether we will accept that. Now, why 12 foundations? These foundations are the works of the apostles. The apostles obediently followed Jesus. They served the early church, and they spread the gospel to the nations. And by doing that, they made it possible for people to know about salvation, and to accept or reject salvation. So when, when you look at the physical description of the New Jerusalem, even the physical structure of the New Jerusalem proclaims the gospel. Jesus Christ is God's only Savior and Messiah, and he's a stone that this wall is built on that separates the lost from the saints. This wall has gates to represent that until the final day, that offer of salvation is open to the nation. The apostles built the foundation for this gospel call, and we are called to salvation before it is too late. In Revelation 21, God is describing heaven in a way to make us feel an urgency, an urgency to accept salvation. Now quickly, let's look at verses 15 through 21. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm going to massacre some of the names of these stones, so just don't laugh out loud. All right? And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its walls, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the, third em or the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh Jason, and the twelfth Amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street, knows that, the singular, the street of the city was pure gold, like trans, uh, transparent glass. Well, if you want 
do something interesting this afternoon before the Super Bowl starts. Go Google the physical structure of the New Jerusalem, because there are all kinds of theories on it. Some people say it's a cube. Some people say it's a pyramid. Some people say it's a cube surrounded by a sphere. Here's the point. Who cares? It's beautiful. It's amazing. Okay? Nobody's salvation is going to hang on whether you get the structure of heaven right or not. But what we do know is that it is absolutely amazing. John MacArthur says it's about 2,000 square miles. I'm not going to dispute John's math. That's not my forte. J. Vernon McGee says it's a cube surrounded by a sphere. But what we really know is that all of the materials of heaven are designed to do one thing. They're designed to be translucent and to magnify God's glory. Even the street is clear. Why? Because heaven and the New Jerusalem are meant to do one thing, to radiate God's glory. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not. I kind of made a point of pointing it out. When I grew up, I was always interested that the streets of heaven were made of gold. That's not what it says. It says the streets of heaven are made of gold. I think this is a kind of a cool and encouraging thing. God is saying, in heaven, we're all going to live on the same street. We're all going to be together. There's not going to be like the good neighborhood and the bad neighborhood, and, you know, north and south. We're all on the same street. We are all unified together under the authority and love and power of God. Let's go on. We're getting close on time. Look at verses 22 through 27. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on, for the glory of God illuminated it. Now look, listen to this. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates will not be sh shut at all by day. There shall be no night. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means, there shall by no means enter anything into it that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, for John, this would have been shocking. No temple? I mean, the disciples and the Jews, they loved the temple. It was the center of their peace. And if you think about it, the temple was a physical, structural representation of God's presence in, Egypt, presence in Israel. And it was also the place where blood sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins were carried out. Those things aren't needed here. You know why? Because in heaven, God, the Father, and Jesus are personally and intimately with us. On earth, the temple was like a symbol or a painting or a representation of God's presence. We don't, know, we don't need a symbolic representation of God's presence in heaven because he's with us. We are with him intimately and personally. That is mind-blowing. That is the thing that many people on this earth, like Moses, have prayed. God, let me see you. No, can't do it. But in heaven, we are going to intimately and personally be with God. It's also interesting, if you look in this passage, there's no created light. There's no sun, 
and there's no moon. Why? Because we have the creator who is light. We don't need created light. It reminds me of that moment at the transfiguration where Jesus goes to the top of the mountain with three of his disciples and he reveals his light. And they are blown away. You know why? Because what Jesus reveals is true light. It's not created. Light is beautiful, and Jesus created it. But he himself is light. The Lamb is the light of heaven. Can you imagine walking through eternity being illuminated by the light of God's glory? All right, very quickly, let's go to chapter chapter 22. We're not going to do the whole chapter, by the way. Look at verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. Think about what Moses wanted that he couldn't have. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them, and they shall reign forever and ever. This is very similar, this river that flows in heaven is very similar to Ezekiel's vision in in Ezekiel 47. There was a life-giving river that flowed from God's temple or from God's God's presence. But here, we see a better river. This is in the eternal river of life that sustains us throughout all eternity. And this is a promise that God gives us to say, you will live forever. Uh Uh-oh, I'm getting the music. (laughs) We're not done yet, so don't get your hopes up. Also in this description, we see the tree of life, just like it exists in Genesis chapter 2. Here's the thing. Seeing this tree of life again in Revelation is like full cycle. We have the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, then there was sin and destruction. And now we get a restoration of that tree of life in heaven, where God freely gives us the same blessings that Adam and Eve squandered by their sin. Okay, what about the fruit? Well, I'll tell you, I don't know. There's 12 kinds of fruit on this tree, okay? And they could represent all kinds of fruit good thing for you to study this afternoon. When I was a young kid, I attended an ordination service for a guy in my church who was becoming an ordained minister. And I remember that, kind of like me, he was of a larger size. And one of the questions that was asked of him during his ordination service was, are we going to eat in heaven? And I very distinctly remember him saying, I hope so. Okay? And maybe we'll eat this fruit. I don't know. But what I do know is that this fruit is a representation of the fact that eternal life will be complete, abundant, and sustained by God. There it is. Now, if you look at this tree, 
It has leaves that bring healing to the nation. This doesn't mean that there's sickness in heaven. It means that God will sustain us in eternal wholeness and well-being by this tree. All right, <clears throat> very quickly. Now, for those of you who have a vision of heaven, of sitting on clouds and playing harp, I got bad news for you. Not going to happen. Okay? What are we going to do in heaven? Well, there's a number of things. We're going to serve God. So we're going to have path and a purpose and service in heaven. We're going to rule. God's going to delegate some of his authority to us to rule on his behalf. We're going to worship. And our worship will be so pure that we actually mirror the glory of God. His name will be on our forehead. And we're going to be able to see God face to face. We'll talk about that. Okay, very quickly, and we're going to be done. Look at verses 12 through 17. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices the law. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the church. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now listen to this. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come, Lord Jesus. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So in this passage, we see Jesus as three things. He's the Savior, he's the Sovereign, and he's the star that announces the coming of eternity. In this passage, Jesus ends with a tremendous sense of urgency that he's the Savior, his return will be quick and imminent, and there's going to be an opportunity for salvation that will end suddenly and without warning. I have to just say this at this moment. If you are not a believer, today is the day. This is the day of salvation. You have no promise of tomorrow. There is a tremendous sense of urgency in the book of Revelation because Jesus is the Savior and he's the only Savior. Then we see that Jesus is the eternal king. He's of the offspring of David. As promised in many, many Old Testament prophecies in heaven, Jesus will be the king of eternity, reigning from the line of David. And then we see Jesus described as the bright and morning star. There's an old saying that the dark it is darkest before the dawn. But in that darkness, there is a light shining, and that is the morning star. In this passage, we see that Jesus is the dawn of a new age the age of and that in the darkness of sin and lostness and the corruption of this earth and the lies of Satan and all the things that get us away from who God is in all that darkness there is a morning star that says the dawn is coming and it's the dawn of eternity well let's end I want to end by quoting out of 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 10 God desires that all 
be saved. Period. It's absolutely clear in the choices here. Listen to what Second Peter says, 3, 8 through 10. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day as, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slack, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The difference between heaven and exclusion from heaven is Jesus. God desires that none should perish, and that all would come to repent. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much that you've given us this glimpse of heaven. And what an incredible hope and promise that is. We know that you are preparing a place for us. You are preparing a wedding service for us. You are preparing eternity for us. And you call us to that, and you promise us that, and that is a great hope and encouragement. But Heavenly Father, there are people amongst us who are lost who do not have that hope and for them heaven is a judgment we pray heavenly father that your holy spirit will be strong amongst us today that you would call people to your salvation to bring them to to hope and eternity with you we ask this in the name of Jesus.